Well, good morning to all of you. We missed you last week. It's good to be back. And having finished our study of First and Second Samuel in the past year, I want to begin taking you through a brief study of the Psalms. And the intent of our time together will be to help you understand why the Psalms were written, how to read the Psalms, and hopefully and to encourage you in your appreciation of this rich book. So turn with me, if you will, to Psalm 1. Let's stand as we honor the fact that this is God's inspired and holy word given to us and profitable for our instruction in all righteousness. Psalm 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you that it is not only profitable for us in all things, but Lord, that it continues to remind us not only of our sin, but of your grace, of your holy standards, but also the strength through your spirit to be obedient, and, and so we thank you for all of these things in your word. May it accomplish those and more today in our hearts and souls. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, most people, when they read the Psalms, think of each Psalm as an individual unit that was then gathered together with other Psalms to form a worship book. And then, not unlike going to a favorite hymn in a hymnal, readers search through the Psalms to find their favorites. And any given person may know Psalm 23, or Psalm 150, and Psalm 98, but then think, well, the rest of the Psalms are pretty much the same. Is that what the book of Psalms is? Was it the hymnal of Israel? And if asked what the overall purpose was of collecting the Psalms together into a single book, would your answer be worship or learn how to worship? Probably. But let me complicate the issue a little bit more. While the book of Psalms is a collection and that many of the Psalms were written by different psalmists at different times, yet when you take a step back and look at the entirety of the collection, you realize there was a very clear structuring of the whole book. For example, there are five separate cohesive sections that make up the book of Psalms. And each section ends with a doxology and an amen. Look at these. Psalm 41, 13. End of what is often called book one of the Psalms. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. These amens, by the way, occur just in these doxologies. Psalm 72, 18. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be this glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with His glory. Amen and amen. Into book two. 
Psalm 89, 52. Blessed be the Lord God forever. Amen and amen. End of book three. Psalm 106, 48. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. And let all the people say, Amen. And then the fifth and final section of the Psalms is ended not just by a single doxological line at the end of a psalm, but by five magnificent psalms, Psalms 146 to 150, all that are doxologies. And Psalm 150 ends not only the fifth entire section, but the whole book of Psalms, inviting all creation to join together with every instrument and praise the Lord. And then the very last verse of the book is Psalm 150, verse 6. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord, praise the Lord. It's a rousing ending, and it reinforces the common thought, really, that the purpose of the book of Psalms is worship. It's completely understandable. And friends, that is an important part of the book of Psalms. But there's more. Not only is there an intentional overall structure to the Psalms as a book, but additionally there are several key doctrinal themes that unify the Psalms and make the book more than a collection of standalone songs. And I don't, as I said, or implied at least, I don't want to dissuade you from seeing the Psalms as being profitable for worship because they clearly are profitable for worship. Instead, I would put it like this. Throughout the book of Psalms, God's people are invited to join in praising the Lord. But if you think just about this book as intending to teach you how and when to worship, then you will miss something vital to this book. If you were an author planning on writing a work, how would you go about the process? Most authors, particularly of nonfiction, they start with a topic and a purpose. What do I want my reader to understand? What do I want them to take away, having spent their time with my book? And, and normally, like creating a well-crafted five-paragraph essay, you kids have learned that by now, right? You start with a thesis statement, and you develop that, right? And you have topic sentences that advance your thesis. Now, I know that many of you know what I'm talking about, right? A five-paragraph essay, and that is what an author does of the essay, but it's also what often an author does in a book in which he or she begins with a thesis statement, typically introducing his or her subject and then explaining the purpose of the book. Even, Even fictional works are often started that way. Consider, for example, these opening lines. I am an invisible man. That was spoken by an unnamed narrator of the book, Invisible Man, who is invisible not because he can't be physically seen, but because he is ignored by his society due to prejudice. As a nod to you women, what about this line? It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of good fortune must be in want of a wife. Where is that from? Uh, David, this is a nod to the women, yes. It was from Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, a book that then tells of the stories of wealthy, eligible bachelors who are in search of wannabe wives. 
And what about the greatest opening line of all? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. A line that introduces the subject of God's creation for his glory and sets the stage for the fall and for later redemption. Well, in the beginning of a book, we find usually a compass. It sets a direction and establishes a purpose. So what do we find in Psalm 1? Would we not if Psalms was primarily about how, where, and why to worship find Psalm 1 to be a glorious example of prayer and praise? Would we not find ourselves, the readers, invited to go through the pages of the Psalms prepared to be ushered into the presence of God? Well, interestingly and importantly, we don't in Psalm 1. Instead, we find ourselves at a juncture in a path. We find ourselves at a crossroads. Poet Robert Frost once wrote, Two, word, two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. Well, in Psalm 1, we have two roads as well. The road of the righteous and the road of the wicked. And not unlike the beginning of Proverbs, where Solomon calls out to his son to give him his heart, so Psalm 1 calls out to you and asks you to make a choice. Do you wish to be blessed? Do you wish to be filled with joy? Then read on. That's the invitation. Read on in the Psalms. For this book will tell you how to be blessed and how to be filled with joy. Yes, the natural result of that joy will be the desire to worship. But first and foundationally, Psalms invite you to consider the way of the blessed. To plant yourself along the water of God's holy instruction, which is why the Psalms, by the way, are not put in a category by themselves of poetry or of worship, but of the wisdom literature, to invite yourself to plant yourself along the water of God's holy instruction and resist the call to follow the wicked. So let's dig in. Verse 1 reads, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. And just as this first chapter serves as an introduction to the entire book, so does the very first word reveal for whom the book is intended. Psalms is addressed to the one who would be blessed. Or joyful. How many of you desire to be blessed and filled with joy? Note that the psalmist does not start with what leads to being blessed, but actually instead starts what doesn't lead to being blessed. The one who would be filled with joy does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, does not stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of scoffers. And notice in verse 1 that the one who is blessed is singular. Blessed is the man or woman, while the wicked... The sinners and the scoffers are all plural. 
This first verse, as one commentator writes, elegantly sets up a one against the masses image. Not only are each of these groups, the wicked, the sinners, the scoffers, plural, but they themselves are placed together as a larger group that tries to lead the blessed man or woman away. So friends, if you want to be blessed and filled with joy right from the start, you are, well, you're reading a warning. It's a warning that it will be a struggle against traffic, a fight against peer pressure and culture and and what your worldly friends want you to do. It can be a lonely struggle at times. But Psalms will show you why you should and must endure. And notice the progression from walking to standing to sitting. This past week, I saw two boys playing in a park, throwing a football to one another. Across the street was a third boy. Wendy thought it might be the brother or a friend. I thought it actually might be an unrelated boy. He saw the two throwing the football in the park and asked his parents if he could go join them. He ran across the street and stood on the outside of this group of two, asking to join in. And you've seen this happen before, right? Where kind of stand a little nervously, at least that's the way it seemed to me, like a neighborhood child wanting to join in on the fun, standing there, self-conscious, realizing here she is outside of the group. But once invited, the child joins in and becomes a part, and, and to ultimately stand around and then to sit with that group is not only to become a part of this new society, but to settle down and root oneself. And once we're sitting, there's no more movement. And that's what we're seeing here. There is a broad road, as Jesus described it, a road that leads to destruction, and it is populated by the wicked who invite you to join them, to walk with them, and you become part of the group. You eventually get to where you're willing to stand around and be identified with this group, and finally you will sit down content to cast your lot with them and no other desire but to be with them. No more questioning. No more going back to the right path. You'd rather be here with the scoffer and the mocker and the sinner than you would be walking the narrow, less traveled path. And there is no comfort here, and that's the point. It's why the first verse of the first chapter of the book of Psalms describes where you don't want to go. So where do you want to go? Well, verse 2 reads, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So verse 2 starts with the word but, but, which means that the blessed one rejects the invitation. Why? Why? Because his delight is in the law of the Lord. And that phrase, law of the Lord, is literally the Torah of the Lord. Torah can certainly refer to a law or a collection of laws. Maybe some of you were thinking Ten Commandments, but more frequently it refers to the instruction or teaching of God. Proverbs 1.9, for example, says, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's Torah, your mother's teaching. 
At the time of the compiling of the Psalms, the phrase Torah of the Lord had become synonymous with what was actually called the Torah with a capital T, which was Genesis through Deuteronomy, the books of Moses. Second Chronicles 34.14, for example, you can see it there, says that Hilkiah the priest, while they were bringing out the money that had been brought into the house of the Lord, found the book of the law, the Torah of the Lord, given through Moses. Meaning that he found the scrolls containing Genesis through Deuteronomy. And remember, I mentioned earlier that this book of Psalms is divided into five sections. And to a Jewish mind, familiar with the phrase Torah of the Lord, sensitive to things like structure and number, Psalms would have very clearly been presenting itself in that final collection as similar to the holy five books of Moses. These books of Moses at that time regarded as the foundation for learning. In fact, the ancient Jews said, as Moses gave five books of laws to Israel, so David gave five books of Psalms to Israel. And what is the point here? The point is that the one who would be blessed is the one who delights more in the instruction of God than in the popularity to be had with the wicked. He or she looks at the Psalms. So this is what's happening here. We look at this, it delights in the Torah of the Lord. And you look here at the Psalms at this as an instruction book for holiness. Psalm 119, which includes the phrase Torah or instruction, law of God, more often than any other psalm, says this in verses 1 through 3, Blessed, again we have the word, are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep His testimonies, who seek Him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in His ways. And you see those same themes as were introduced in Psalm 1. Blessing, the idea of walking, taking a path, It's in the law or instruction of the Lord, and we see the desire with their whole heart. But then Psalm 119 adds some important details. Verse 27 says, Make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. We didn't get that in Psalm 1, but Psalm 119 helps us understand that the right path is discerned as a result of God's grace. Not only does grace enable us to understand the right way, but as verse 105 says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Friends, the Psalms are meant to be a light to your path. You are being invited to meditate upon these Psalms, not like my favorite Psalm, Psalm 23 taken out of 150 Psalms, but on as an entire book, as an instruction in wisdom and the holy life, and you are being invited rather than to sit with the scoffer to instead plant yourself by the water of life-giving truth to be found only in God. And speaking of planting, look at verse 3 there in our passage. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, 
and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. So God lights up and reveals the path of righteousness. It leads to the water, and there the one who seeks joy becomes rooted like a tree. And the metaphor of a tree is rich in the Scriptures. In describing the power of the Assyrian Empire, Ezekiel in chapter 38 writes, Behold, Assyria was a cedar in Lebanon with beautiful branches and forest shade and towering height, its top in the clouds and the waters nourished it and the deep made it grow tall making its rivers flow around the place of its planting, sending forth its streams to all the trees of the field. So it towered high above all the trees of the field. Its, its boughs grew large and its branches long from abundant water in its shoots. And so we, we have this image of a towering tree nourished by plentiful and abundant water. It was perfect for Assyria. Ezekiel goes on in verse 8, the cedars in the garden of God could not rival it. Nor the fir trees equal its boughs, neither the plane trees like its branches. No tree in the garden was its equal in beauty. I made it beautiful. So God gave Assyria its greatness for a time. But Assyria's then correspondingly great downfall was due to the fact like so many world empires, that Assyria boasted of its own strength, had no acknowledgement of God. And so God chopped down that tree. Trees in the Bible are also sites of important events. Abraham builds an altar to God at the Oaks of Mamre. In Beersheba, Abraham plants a tamarisk tree and calls upon the Lord there at Shechem. God appears to Abraham at the oak of Moreh. But sadly, trees are often also the sites of pagan worship, right? Who can't read Hosea 4, where he says, My people inquire of a piece of wood, and their walking staff gives them oracles, and not sadly laugh. They sacrifice in the tops of the mountains and burn offerings in, on the hills under oak and poplar and terebinth because their shade is good. But also because the tree in the ancient world symbolized life. Strong trunk, strong branches, fruit for food, leaves for shade. Look at the tree metaphor in Psalm 92. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in Him. And notice that this tree is planted by the Lord. Just like Psalm 1 also speaks of being planted. In both cases, the tree is not planted as a seed and then grown in the soil, but it's actually transplanted to a place where it will thrive. Look at Psalm 80. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. 
You cleared the ground for it. It took deep roots and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. And so we have Israel's deliverance from Egypt culminates with her being transplanted by God, the divine gardener who cultivates, right, the ground and prepares it for her so that she will thrive. And so in using this rich imagery of a tree in verse 3, the psalmist is inviting you to think about the currents of, of these trees, both good and bad in the rest of Scripture. And the one who would be blessed must make a choice. Choose not to walk, stand, and sit with the wicked, but rather to seek after the instruction of the Lord. And as a result of that choice, even as you read last week in Psalm 84, where better is one day in the courts of the Lord than a thousand elsewhere, God the gardener makes clear the pathway to his courts where there awaits the fertile soil that he has prepared. And there, beside streams of life-giving water, God takes the tree of his blessed one, the tree that is yet immature and weak, and he plants it. And there it begins to take root and grow strong. The tree endures and the leaves don't wither and the fruit grows always as produced in its season. Now given the choice between the two, which do you want? Do you want a life that is not only profitable and purposeful, but one that is well-pleasing to God? And it leads us to the final three verses where the consequences of the wrong choice are made even clearer. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. Sinners will not stand in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So having just spoken of a mighty tree, which in the majestic imagery of Psalm 80 is so large that it shades even the mountains with its branches, the wicked are like chaff. What a great contrast. Right? Chaff is the husks of corn or wheat that are broken off from the seed. Israelites would bring seed to the threshing floor where it was either beaten by hand with tools or walked on by animals and it would break apart the seed from the chaff and then everything was tossed up into the air and the heavier seed would fall back to the ground. But what would the chaff do? It would blow away in the wind. And that's the image. It's... It's such a a great, like I said, contrast to a mighty rooted tree. Earlier in the psalm, the wicked took time to sit. But that time is not long in the grand scheme of things. Before you know it, God's judgment comes and, and like chaff, the wicked are blown away in the wind and are burned. There is only one end, says Psalm 1, and that is to perish. Or as Proverbs 14.12 says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its way ends in death. Or Psalm 112.10 says, the longings of the wicked will come to nothing. And so, at the very beginning, you are being asked, 
which path? Are you willing to take the less popular path, the narrow path? Are you willing to to go against traffic? To be one against the masses? Are you willing to be planted as a tree and take time to root, but have a profitable life? I shared with some of you at family camp last year how shortly after we first moved into our our house at Delhi, there was a small mulberry tree that began to sprout next to what were then three. Some of you remember mulberry trees in our front yard, and I, I transplanted that little shoot outside of our garage near the pool pump where water, we regularly were clearing out the filter and that tree grew. Today I'm concerned by its size. It's far taller than the garage and and almost as tall as the nearby acacia tree and sending out roots that are probably going to impact the foundation of the garage. But that tree took years of sunlight and water to get to where it is today. And little by little, it expanded its roots, taking greater purchase. And I also shared how when we pulled out the grass from the small front lawn, yet again, because it just did not seem to grow, we had decided that we were going to take out some of the dirt and replace it with topsoil, thinking that was the root cause, so to speak, of why grass wasn't growing there. But when we did it, we realized that the real reason the grass has never grown well there is that that large mulberry tree out front had sent its roots down into the ground that then curled back, and all the root tips were all vertically standing straight up in our front yard area. It was a carpet of root tips. And that's the image I want you to to get from Psalm 1, which is this tree with a thick network of roots that not only hold the tree firm, but soak in the water for nourishment. Do you believe that God wants you to make decisions for His glory or for your glory? His glory, right? Then you must believe that the goal of godly holiness is a higher priority than all that would distract you. The world with its attractive distractions and temptations are there, and there are more of them. There's a mass of the wicked wanting you to sit with them. But you must be convinced of the truth found in Hebrews 12, 14, that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. None of us like sacrifice or suffering. Or hard work. It takes a long time to stand like the tree firmly planted and keep sending down roots while we watch the scoffers and the ungodly move about according to their desires. And we're going to find out next week that they don't just walk away. They will do everything. Once you won't join them, they will do everything to frustrate what you are doing. And if we are not passionate about the goal of being like Christ, we will not last as a tree. 
And sometimes we don't know where to start. We formerly, as Romans 6.19 says, gave ourselves to developing habits of unholiness. And maybe some of you have been sitting with the scoffers for a while and the thought of standing up and moving to a different direction not only sounds unpopular but actually painful and you will have to leave things behind. You'll have to sacrifice. But just as we formerly walked in the counsel of the ungodly and stood in the path of sinners and sat in the seat of the scornful, so we are to give ourselves to the opposite, to developing habits of holiness. We're to put off our old self, our flesh and its habits, and put on the new self. It's time, as verse 3 suggests, to not put out rotten fruit. It's time to put good fruit out in its season. And right there, friends, is Satan will, you, will appeal to you through your desires. As you think about the strategy he used with Eve, he... He did attack her reason by questioning God's integrity, but his more subtle and primary temptation was to her desire because he pointed out how the tree was good for food and we read that it was a delight to her eyes. That was the the strongest temptation, desirable for making one wise. And that's why it's so important to remember verse 2 that your desire and your delight must be and you need to foster This new and better thing, instruction in the Torah of the Lord, the instruction of the Lord. Flee, as Paul says to Timothy, the evil desires of youth. King David asks in a different psalm, how can a young man keep his way pure? And the answer is what? To live according to the word of God. There's no shortcut. Solomon says in Proverbs 2.10 that wisdom and understanding and discretion will guard us from evil. He also says the Lord gives wisdom. Do you desire that? Do you want to make the right choices? The Lord gives it. And remember this, friends. The ungodly may seem to prosper for a brief moment. We'll read that in some of the Psalms. Psalmist trying to reorient his mind around the fact that, you know, I've made the choice. I am meditating how I love your law, as we read later in Psalm 119. I've made the choice to be rooted as a tree and to meditate upon the instruction of the Lord. But why do they prosper? Why do they seem to be doing well? And the fact is that they will, on a surface level, seem to be doing well. And there's a lot of them. But we are reminded here they will be like the chaff that the wind drives away because they are not rooted in anything except selfishness. And that root is not in anything solid. It is tempting for you to want to be in the sea of the scornful and yet through delight in the Lord and the slow, steady putting down of roots, you will be equipped to stand in the judgment. That's a point at the end of these verses. You will stand. You're being rooted not just for the present but for the future as well. You will stand in the congregation, the righteous, through God's judgment. And that is the very 
place, here's the ultimate irony, the very place where you will stand is where the sinner will want to be standing. You're tempted now to stand in the congregation of the scoffer, but they will want to be standing in the congregation of the righteous during the judgment. Which one do you desire? One day the ungodly will give anything and everything to be like you. Do you want to be blessed? Do you want to be a tree that produces good fruit? Do you want to pass through the judgment and enter eternity with the company of the righteous? If you say yes, then you are ready for the book of Psalms. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for this book that we have of instruction and holiness of the call to root ourselves in the life-giving water of your instruction. And so I pray for I pray for that desire from the very beginning that we would know clearly what the choice is. You would not have put at the very beginning of this important book what not to do if it was not so glaringly important and in some ways tempting to us to follow that path. And so, Lord, I pray for the strength and desire to be transplanted by you in these life-giving waters. Lord, we do desire to be blessed. We pray that through the meal now, through our fellowship with one another, that you would continue to water us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.